You can't be the best at anything without competing in an environment where there is pressure or stress. And it's really important for people to understand stress is actually a key ingredient in high performance. But most people are trying to avoid pressure. Most people are trying to avoid stress. Whereas what we teach people how to do is how to use stress in a healthy way, in a way that you can regulate and actually allow that pressure to be turned into greatness. Welcome to Startups and Unicorns with Belinda Agnew, your home to learn all things funding, scaling, talent, branding, and the billion-dollar dream. Finding out how to be a unicorn in a field of horses. Hear from industry founders and discover how to stand out to those who matter most to your business. With your host, tech startup fanatic, Belinda Agnew. Wow, what a journey this has been to date. I'm so pumped to have this guest on the show. I'm a huge fan of his. Before I introduce this amazing human, I just want to say a big, big thank you to every single person who has supported me to date, reached out to me in some form, whether that's on social media or a phone call. Just want to say huge thank you to those who have supported the show to date. I cannot believe, by the way, we were in the top five under entrepreneurship and business in Australia up against like the big guys, Gary Vaynerchuk and Tim Ferriss, WTF, have no idea how that happened, but it's incredible. So I just want to say thank you to all of you. It wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for you. So thank you. I'm going to jump in and introduce this amazing person now. Our guest on the show is Cohen Ray. (laughs) Super pumped to have him. He's an entrepreneur, businessman, coach, mentor, author, and international speaker. The last 20 years, Cohen Ray has dedicated much of his attention to psychology of influence and is globally recognized as an expert in human behavior. He's used his profound experiences and knowledge in these areas to help small to medium-sized businesses achieve a higher level of growth. Welcome to the show, Cohen. Belinda, it's an Absolute honor and a pleasure. It's taken us a while to get here. I'm not sure if we should tell the listeners um, oh the uh, the challenges <laughs> that we've both had. Kidding right now? No, <laughs> no, okay. we won't. We, we can, won't share we that. Can tell them. No, no, we'll tell them. It's quite funny. So Cohen and I had rescheduled three times. No, was it three times or twice? I'm not sure. The first not- time, I my pants had split down the street to the studio, right in the middle of my crack. <laughs> Long story short, uh, I had to reschedule this. So now we're here. Now we're here. <laughs> I bet you've never you, opened a podcast like that before. Yeah. And mind you, this has happened to you as well. <laughs> it has. It's twice. And that's where I think you, that's where we connect. Uh, Cause I, I shared with you my two instances, one getting in my truck where I split my pants from uh, send to breakfast time. And the other time when I was at the gym and I was doing wall balls and I split my pants, literally, it was almost like from the waist strap oh. all the way down to the bum strap. And I had no underwear on whatsoever. Thankfully it wasn't a crowded gym. Uh, and thankfully my trainer had a spare pair of underwear and a spare pair of pants. So we're in good company, Belinda. Okay. We're, we're homies. <laughs> with the crack pants. <laughs> crack pants. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show. Thank um, you. It's great to be here. 
A couple reasons is I heard you're an expert in human mind and, and all of that. I can't wait to talk about that because I'm totally obsessed with that right now. I'm super down like a spiritual journey and it's all about the mind and the soul and the spirit and how our mind works and being present. So super keen to get into that. But awesome. let's just start with who is Cohen Ray? You yeah, sell yourself like, better than I can. No, I hate answering that question. And normally Why? I just have an ask model for Calvin Klein because it's just the easiest response that I can get out quickly. Uh, and then people laugh. And I said, if I, and then I normally say, if I walked in backwards, you probably wouldn't be giggling so hard. But um, listen, I'm someone that's got a passion. I'm a, I've been obsessed for over 30, close to 30, 25, 27 years now. Uh, I've been obsessed with performance. Um, you know, from a very early age, uh, I was obsessed with performance. Um, but it was probably in my, uh, late teens, early twenties that I directed that obsession around performance into business. And so for the last, uh, let's call it 25 years now, my niche, my jam has been in the area of growing businesses very quickly. Um, but the reality is I've just, I'm just someone who, you know, is obsessed with performance in a range of different areas. And I've learned the routines, the processes, the frameworks, you know, the strategies that when applied consistently over a period of time producing incredible results. And um, yeah, I feel very fortunate now to, to be able to share that with a lot of people, a lot of clients and a lot of people all over the world. And I noticed um, I was listening to one of your podcasts or I was reading something about you, which was super intriguing because not many people know about this and I'd love for you to share about sure. it as well. Um, you've done ayahuasca before? I have. Yeah, a number yeah, of times. A few times, yeah. Yes, and every, every time I talk to somebody about ayahuasca, they're like, what is that? <laughs> like, what, what is even that? And there's only minimal people. I've met a lot of people and I'm sure you have as well. There's only a few people in the world that have actually taken ayahuasca. Um, so, so what is it? Can you explain what, what that is? Yeah, look, I, I, I would suggest there's probably more than a few people now. Ayahuasca has found its way all over the world, you know, as a plant medicine. And ayahuasca is a plant medicine. It's a combination of a number of um, South American plants that is used in ceremony and ritual with the purpose of healing. Um, you know, in the Western yeah. world, we call it psychedelic therapy. Um, you know, in the, in, in, in the other worlds, uh, it's referred to as medicine, you know, plant medicine and ayahuasca uh, has a number of, um, uh, I guess you could say ingredients or components. Two of them specifically is you've got DMT, uh, mm-hmm. dimethyltryptamine, which is an incredibly potent, um, psychedelic, uh, hallucinogenic. And you've also got, um, uh, four MEO inhibitors in the form of, um, you know, other substances and plants that they use. And, you know, uh, DMT is an incredibly potent psychedelic, which has the capacity to sh- allow your mind to show you things and allow your mind to resolve things. Um, but it also has incredible physical benefits as well. And it's interesting in South America, when they take ayahuasca, they take it for the body first. And anything that happens in the mind is considered to be, you know, just an extra benefit. Um, but when you look at, you know, the broader concepts of plant medicine or as it gets into the Western into the Western context, psychedelic therapies, you know, psychedelic therapy is, is, is something that has not just been used, you know, by um, different cultures for the last, you know, few thousand years. It's also something that's been quite heavily documented in Western um, pharmacology and Western medicine since the, uh, the, the early fifties uh, and, and yeah, sorry, early, early to late fifties where, you know, a lot of research was conducted with the use of psychedelic substances to treat a whole range of uh, mental conditions and, and mental health issues. And, 
incredible and also addiction as well very successfully so you know the medicine works differently on different people depending on you know the type of medicine that you're taking but uh it's uh it's a journey that can be very confronting and ayahuasca is a mother plant uh, so it's got a lot of mother energy, uh, as it's referred to. So a lot of feminine energy, and she's uh, she's one of those beings where one day I've done I've sat with in ceremony a number of times, and you know some days you'll turn up in ceremony and she'll give you a big hug and a kiss, and other days you'll turn up in ceremony or she'll turn up in ceremony and she'll kick your ass depending on what you need at the time. Um, but it's probably been some of the best, some of the most powerful work that I've done has been in ceremony when it comes to personal development. And that might sound a bit strange, especially, you know, for someone who's um, done as much research, study and application and and, and practiced, I guess you could say the, the different modalities and sciences of personal development. I found, yeah, psychedelic and ceremonial therapies to be, yeah, as potent, if not more potent than, you know, most of the technology that I've, I've come across. Did, did you do these ceremonies in Australia? I'm going to say no, just based on okay. the, the legal, potential legal ramifications. I'm going to say that I oh, okay, went okay. to other countries, okay. I didn't know um, which I did, which I did. Okay. I went to other countries uh, in order to sit in ceremony. Unfortunately, our laws here, you know, don't allow us to do that, um, you know, the same as other countries do in, in, they, in ceremony. I thought that they did have it in Byron. Um, look, I'm sure there are people that do okay. practice and that do. Um, but it's not legal. No, it's, it's it's a very gray area. But for the most part, no, it's not legal. Interesting. Okay. Well, there you go. I've learned something. I didn't know there that. You go. I thought it was a practice. You can do it in Australia. Well, there you go. There you go. So yeah, so that was one of the the things that I picked up about you, and I wanted to bring it up because sure. I've met so many people, interesting people, and the most interesting ones have taken ayahuasca. <laughs> yeah. Well, and even psychedelics enough, in general. Enough. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because I just want to throw onto this because a lot of people might hear this and go, oh, you know, you know, people use psychedelics or ayahuasca just to get high. And, you know, for yeah. me, my journey with psychedelic therapy um, and ayahuasca all of it, 100% of it was intended very deliberately around, you know, the healing of trauma, you know, and the healing of, you know, issues that I was, you know, in the process of either struggling or attempting to resolve. And, you know, one of the most successful resolutions that I've had was with PTSD. I used to suffer from severe complex PTSD and, you know, the difference between, you know, simple PSD and complex, simple PSD, you know, there's a range of things that can trigger it. Whereas with complex, anything can trigger it, you know, a loud noise, an argument, you know, anything that heightens the, the central nervous system and activates, you know, that fight or flight can trigger, you know, a three, four, five, seven day episode where my heart rate could have been at 100, 120 beats, you know, for a period of, you know, three, five, six, seven days. And so you're in a constant state of, you know, vigilance and, and, and um, your body feels constantly unsafe. And so for me, after living with that for about, let's call it 15 odd years, I, I was seeking alternative therapies to resolve that. And I'd done all sorts of Western therapies, you know, EMDR and talk therapy. And it wasn't until I discovered, you know, psychedelic therapy and also MDMA therapy that I was actually able to after, you know, three, um, three ceremonies or three sittings, uh, I was able to completely resolve my PTSD and, you know, touch wow. wood since then. I've, I've never had a major episode um, you know, since, 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 since I've done that work and I, and that's why I don't treat it lightly. Cause a lot of people talk about it in the context that it's a fad. It's yes, very, you know, true. well, yeah. you know, if, if Mark Zuckerberg did it, then it's gotta be cool. And I'm not saying Zuck's done it. I don't know. But what I'm saying is, you know, yeah. there's a lot of people that kind of almost celebritize 
psychedelic therapy therapy or celebritize um you know ayahuasca and not realize that there's a real it's a medicine you know it's not a drug per se it's it's a real medicine and it, uh, it has an incredible range of benefits well, yeah, I, I've heard either way, like some people, um, you know, become a completely different person. Well, everybody becomes a completely different person after they do ayahuasca, but some in a really bad way and some in a really good way. But really, it's ultimately finding yourself, right? Your, your yeah. core purpose. And, that, and-, and, and, that's, and that's the thing when it comes to any form of medicine or ceremonial medicine, you know, it's so important to be, have good, good education you know, know what you're getting yourself into. You know, you don't just show up on a whim and go, oh, I'm going to go and do ayahuasca on Saturday. You know, you, you mm. know, something that calls you. And I know for me personally, I did about seven years worth of research before I sat ayahuasca for the first time. You know, I did at least two and a half years of research before I engaged in psychedelic therapy and MDMA therapy. Okay. You know, so I'm not someone that just Very jumped deep. in. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I did a lot of a lot of work around that. And, you know, there's a lot of respect that comes with understanding the medicine because if you don't have the right guide if you don't have the right set if you don't have the right setting it can there are situations and circumstances where you know people don't necessarily have a good journey they don't necessarily have a good ceremony you know mm-hmm. and you always the saying is you always you get the ceremony you need not the ceremony you want mm-hmm. um and sometimes it's in the integration process and that's what a lot of people don't realize because once you have the ceremony that's that's just the ceremony you know the real transformation happens in the next six to nine to twelve months during the integration phase and Got that's it. where your brain and your body Body has to integrate, you know, um, the signs, the signals, the connections, the messages that were received, you know, in that in that space, in that ceremony. And you know, right now, and, and this is, the, I guess, you could say the other side of you know ceremony or the other side of medicine. You know, I know plenty of guys that are, you know, who would refer to themselves as spiritual as fuck. They sit ceremony once a month, but their lives are shit, you know? And so to me, I don't care whether you sit psilocybin, ayahuasca, MDMA, LSD, show me your life, you know? Because if you're not able to use or what you're doing in a way to create a life that, you know, is one worth living, then to me, I don't care if you sit ayahuasca 10 times a year. If your life is still shit, I don't care how, that doesn't make you any more spiritual. You know, it's just a bypass that is distracting you from doing anything with your life no 100 percent. it's uh the actions right that they're taking based on absolutely the yeah for sure i haven't done ayahuasca by the way it's just something <laughs> i've been super curious about for many many months um okay. on end i don't know why it's just something i'm really like looking into and every time i look into it i get more curious well you're um, being called this is a calling is and so, it and, okay. and this is how the medicine works because like, for right. me i had seven years of calling before i sat yeah, I you know, seven years of it would come onto my radar. Seven years of a, yes. a book would be given to me. Seven years of you know, oh, I, did, I went to South America and I did, and I'm like, really? Oh, that's interesting. I'm curious about that. And then it, you know, yeah. ultimately, you know, it uh, culminated in literally. Uh, I was in in the UK and I had a mate of mine going, oh, what are you doing tomorrow night? It was that kind of cliche. And I was like, oh, I don't know why. He goes, well, I'm, I've been invited to sit in ceremony with a you know with um, a shaman who's out from South America. Would you like to come? And I was like. And at this point, I've been called for seven years. So it's not like I just thought about it on the day. Got it, yeah. And I was just like, yeah, this is something I need to do. How old uh, were you, by the way? Because I don't want to talk uh, to you. That's a good question. I think I was about 30. The first time I sat ayahuasca, I think I was in my, it's about 35. 35, okay. 
So it wasn't too young where you kind of No, I'd done a lot of psychedelics when I was younger going through my party phase, but I'd never done it intentionally. It was always done recreationally. And there's a very big difference between using psychedelics for recreational purposes and psychedelics for therapeutic purposes. You know, and if if, if there's an interest there, I'd really encourage you to read. There's a great book by a incredible doctor, PhD, Dr. James Fadiman. You know, he's probably one of the most renowned um, psychedelic therapists on the planet in, in terms of well-researched and, 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 and has the clinical data to back it, back it up based on, you know, going all the way back to the fifties and sixties till now. Uh, and his name's Dr. James Fadiman. And um, he's written the book, The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide. And it really goes into a lot of detail about the history of psychedelics, how psychedelics have been used in a range of different therapies from depression, you know, to alcoholism, to drug addiction um, and, uh, and PTSD and, and the success that they've had with it. And it really is when you start looking at the academic research and the papers around the resolution of, um, you know, mental health, a range of mental health issues. Mm. And, and this is where help me understand why it's it's taken so long to penetrate mainstream we're starting to see it penetrate mainstream now you know we're seeing it in colorado and in different parts of the u.s and denver where you know psilocybin is now being legalized um you know at a state level but um i think there's been an enormous amount of resistance to it the same reason there's an enormous amount of resistance to any form of natural therapy because if you've got a, a natural therapy that you can use to apply to a disease or a condition and it can cure it it can cure it in let's call it you know one or two or three sittings then that kind of removes, you know, um, the subscription model that, you know, pharmacology is based on because a lot of pharmacology is based on subscription models. You know, they want to diagnose you with a condition. They don't want to treat the condition. They want to treat the symptoms because there's more money to be made in the treatment of the symptoms than there is the treatment of the condition because then you're a, a subscriber for life. And if you look at, you know, as, um, psychological therapy or psychiatric therapy, you know, these are subscription models. These are models that whereby the therapists require, you know, a patient to be coming back every week, every fortnight, every month ongoing, you know, and it's, it's in the best interest of the therapist, but not necessarily the best interest of the patient. Whereas when you look at psychedelic therapy or MDMA therapy, depending on what conditions you're looking at treating, you know, there are practitioners that are you're curing PTSD in one or two treatments, you know, curing some form of some, some um, um, forms of mental health issues in one or two um, sessions. And that, you know, that doesn't bide well for a, um, uh, a subscription model in pharmacology. If anything, that's a massive threat, you know? So, um, but we're seeing a shift. We're seeing a change. Wow. That was so powerful. What you just said, it was Joel Brown, one of my friends, you probably know him. He actually posted something last week. He said, there's no money made in healthy people, period. (laughs) Well, I disagree with that. I'll say, yeah, there is. If you're selling them supplements. From a medical perspective, no, it's, you it's know, the, the medical insane. profession doesn't benefit from healthy people. Yeah. You know? It's a big one now, especially in, in um, the time that we're in mental health is, you know, rising. So it's actually a really good point that you made. So maybe people should start looking into stuff like this rather and they than- are. And this is the thing more yeah. than ever before, you yeah. know, um, the research is out there, you know, we've got, um, you know, different organizations, uh, around the world now that are really pioneering information, data, academic papers t- to demonstrate 
yeah, not just the efficacy, but also the safety, you know, and again, a lot of people say, well, there's massive safety issues when it comes to psychedelic therapy. There's massive safety issues when it comes to walking across the street. You know, yeah, if you absolutely. know how to walk across the street, if you know how to look left and right, if you know how to put one foot in front of the other and not step in a drain, then chances are you're going to be able to walk across the street relatively safely. Okay. But if you, and it's the same, same is true with psychedelic therapy or ceremonial therapy or ceremonial medicine, plant medicine. You know, if you're, if you, if you don't go in there, you know, with a level of equipment or a level of education uh, or a level of understanding about what you're going to be getting yourself into, then yeah, the things that can go wrong. Yeah, no, absolutely. So like all of this that you have done um, with, with all the knowledge that you have around human behavior, um, this all came from business initially because, you know, pressure. Not actually. And, and no, no it, it, came, it, it came from a very uh, disjointed, unha- I wouldn't say unhappy, but um, it, it came as a result of a young man who had a lot of problems. And, you know, okay. I just wanted to work out how to feel normal. I wanted to feel like a normal person. I wanted to look at someone and I wanted to be able to walk into a room and look at everyone relaxed and go, you know, oh, I'm just as relaxed as you are versus why am I the only person who's wound up in this room like a spring? You know, I've had a a lot of stuff over the years that I've had to contend with. You know, I've I've had a, uh, and again, not saying my journey or my story is bigger or better than anyone else's, but, you know, I've experienced a a disproportionate amount of trauma, you Mm -hmm. know, in the form of physical trauma, mental trauma, um, and by virtue of that, that's created a range of responses in my body, uh, in my brain, in my physiology, in my psychology that caused behaviors that weren't behaviors I wanted to be demonstrating. And so I started studying, you know, uh, books around personal development. And then I started to see and realize that the underlying theme in personal development was psychology. Mm. And so as a natural consequence, I started to study psychology, different modalities of psychology. Um, and then I ended up with this incredible body of knowledge. And at the time I was already, I'd already been a salesperson and I'd started becoming a marketer at that point. And I started to see the correlation between the more I learn about myself, the more I'm learning about psychology, the more I'm learning about psychology, the more I understand about other people and the more I understand about other people, the easier it is for me to understand how to influence them in ethical and moral ways. And so, you know, personal development led me to psychology. Psychology led me to understand human behavior at a whole other level beyond what I'd call pop psychology, which is contained in, you know, a lot of personal development. And then I use that information to go, oh, okay, well, I've now got this body of knowledge. How can I commercialize it? How can I, you know, I've spent years, you know, researching, you know, personal development in order to learn how to respond in different ways. But now I understand so much about myself and how to motivate and manipulate, not manipulate, motivate and influence my own behaviors that I now know how to motivate and influence other people's behavior. So what can I do with this? And I was already sales and marketing orientated. And that's where I, you know, went more into marketing, more into sales, um, uh, copywriting. And then by virtue of that, I, uh, I realized I wasn't a very good employee and I got into business and, uh, that's kind of the genesis, I guess you could say. And, and what do you do now? Tell, tell people about like, cause people know Cohen Ray. Cohen Ray, by the way, is a huge personal brand. It's a big name itself, but thank you. what, what is your business? Cause people, well, I know that you scale businesses and you grow yes. businesses, but what is it that you do? Is it like a three-step thing, five-step thing? What is it? Look, we, we work on five, uh, what I'd call the five pillars of fast growth. And so for me, you know, I'm very lucky. I've got ADHD. Um, I'm also dyslexic, but uh, how that affected me as an entrepreneur is I, I failed my first three businesses pretty spectacularly. So it's not like I was born with a silver spoon on my butt. Uh, if anything, you know, I've had to work harder than pr- probably a lot of people, but by virtue of me having to um, work it out 
by myself as someone with ADHD, I realized that if I can't make something move quickly, I can't, it can't capture my attention. And if I can't capture my attention, then I check out, I get bored and I check out. Mm. And so one of the things that I discovered 20 years ago, you know, when I started getting this knowledge and I started applying it, you know, the first thing I did was I started, you know, buying, building, selling businesses. And then I was helping mates just with advice. And then I started to realize there was a real value to what I did. And that's when I, I turned into, turned to consulting and then the consulting turned into coaching and then the coaching turned into the events company and the seminar company that we have today. Um, but by virtue of what I do, my whole model is around slow is fast. And it is, how do we do the right thing slowly? Whereas a natural consequence, things move quickly, mm. you know? And so the model that I use the five, you know, the five, the, uh, the five pillars of fast growth. The first one is around psychology. I, I spend a disproportionate amount of time with my clients around psychology. And if you look at the results that we get with our clients and I think, you know, if anyone wants to temperature test that, you know, you can go and check out our website. You know, we have more results in the area of business and I'd even probably go as far as say almost personal development in Australia, but in business, we, you know, per capita, we get better results than any other person, you know, in this country when it comes to working with businesses. And I would suggest almost anyone else in the world. And one of the things that makes us different is, yes, we've got very good business process, very, you know, benchmark uh, business process. But one of the things that makes what I do different is I spend a disproportionate amount of my time with my clients on the mindset on the psychology, because it doesn't matter, you know, Belinda, I can, I can give, you know, 10 people the same information and nine will fuck it up 52 ways to Friday. And one person, maybe one person will be able to use that information and apply it in a practical way to get a result. That's true. And, you know, that comes down to the mindset of the individual. Cause if, if I can't, if I can't get someone to be able to take action, it doesn't matter what I tell them to do. They're not going to do anything. And so a big part of what I do is, is in the realms of psychology that's quite evident by the content that we publish online, you know, and, and that area of psychology is not just around the motivation component, but it's also around the conditioning component, like teaching or showing people and taking through the process of stress conditioning and showing them how to condition themselves towards stress, showing them how to be able to regulate stress in healthy ways, regulate emotions in healthy ways, because they're, you know, two of the most destructive things in business is an unregulated emotion and high stress because high stress, high cortisol, you know, high cancer, high, 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 high bad health, you know, and high emotion mm. equals high dysfunction. And so one of the things that, you know, we spend a disproportionate amount of time doing is showing people how to get their mind to work for them, not against them, mm-hmm. introduce them to the concepts and enable them to be able to deal with higher and higher levels of stress because business is stressful, performance is stressful. And especially if you want to play at the top end of the game, you know, you can't be the best at anything without competing in an environment where there is pressure or stress. And it's really important for people to understand pressure stress is actually a key ingredient in high performance, but most people are trying to avoid pressure. Most people are trying to avoid stress. Whereas what we teach people how to do is how to use stress in a healthy way, you know, with a strong psychology in a way that you can regulate and actually allow that pressure to be turned into greatness, you know? And um, yeah, that's probably one of the biggest things that makes a difference with what we do. The second area we focus on is strategic planning. It's very tactical in nature. And not the kind of planning where you're, you know, you're creating a 30-page business plan for your, for, your, for your banker. It's a very tactical document. You know, the third area that we focus on is marketing. The fourth area we focus on is sales customization. And the fifth area that we focus on is leadership and scale, um, which is ultimately how you get your life back. Because a lot of people get into business because they want to have more freedom, but they end up with anything else. But, um, and the only way that you can get true freedom from your business is having a business that, you know, can operate without you being there. And that requires an understanding around people, automation, technology, process, 
Um, and that takes time. But when you know how to do it the right way, you can do it a lot quicker. And so, yeah, the core of what we do is we show businesses how to scale quickly. The majority of my clients, when I work with them, especially if we're doing one-on-one, you know, we'll go from working, let's call it 60, 80, 100 hours a week down to, you know, 40, 30, 20 hours a week. But in most cases, you know, if you look at my higher end one-on-one clients, which is what we call our K2 elites, it's about one in three to one in four, well, two X to 10 X in their first 18 months to two years working with me. And it's important to point out, these aren't hundred dollar businesses. I'm not working with startups. The the bulk of my businesses are between 1 million to 50 million, you know? And so if you're 10 Xing a a $1 million business, that's, you know, that's a, that's an achievement. Whereas, you know, you could take a business that's turning over a hundred dollars and take it to a thousand and go, well, I 10 X that business. Yeah. That's not a big achievement. You know, that's just due process. So um, yeah, it's a big part of what we do. We're very good at what we do, but I'm not, I'm not naive to the fact that what makes us great is we do have benchmark world-class business practice, but we just seem to be able to communicate the psychology and the mindset component in a way that really enables people to create change in behavior. Mm, Which is your core strength really is what we actually spoke about in the beginning. Yeah been there, done it, you know, um, which is incredible. So I actually have a couple of questions because, you know, your, yeah, I guess away. your, your niche is scaling businesses and doing it really well. So let's just say, I guess two things, what would you say the most, or what are the differences that you see in a startup versus a unicorn, you know, unicorns, a unicorn really, yeah. I mean, like a Facebook versus a, well, I think the main difference is mom and dad the, shop. Yeah, look, I um, I probably haven't spent enough times with unicorns to be able to give you some some really key differences. But you know, unicorns are unicorns, and that means they're rare. You know, they're one in a billion phenomena. Uh, it doesn't happen every day. Um, but you know, I, I think there's a number of books that will probably do a better job of being able to identify the differences in what I can. But I think timing plays a huge role. You know, in terms of yeah. the the product, you know, the service that you've got, the timing that you have when you bring it to market. You know, because there are plenty of people who had great ideas, brought it to market, but they've been t- 10 years too early, mm-hmm. you know, and then sure enough, 10 years later, someone else brings the same idea to market, maybe not even as good. And then before you know it, you know, you've got these, these unicorns. And a great example would be, um, I don't know if you spend much time in the US, but I pre-COVID, I used to be in the US at least four or five times a year. And I spent a lot of time um, in um, uh, in the West Coast, in uh, LA, Santa Monica, Manhattan Beach, Venice Beach. I love that area down there. And I, over the, I used to go there, as I said, a few times a year. And then one year, all of a sudden, I remember getting there and there was, there was a few electric scooters getting around. And yeah. there were these electric scooters where you could go up and you could just download an app and you could scan the code and, you know, you'd already uploaded your credit card details and you could jump on an electric scooter and you could ride anywhere around LA that you want to as long as it yeah. had enough charge. And I remember thinking, wow, that's a great idea. Three months later, I came back and they were fucking everywhere. You know, they went from being a couple here and there and there were thousands. I'm talking, you know, Venice was inundated. Santa Monica was in They were just everywhere. And I remember just thinking, wow. And these businesses, I think it was called Bird. Um, it became a billion dollar valuation in the first three months. Mm-hmm. Again, unicorn status very quickly. And it was a concept that wasn't new. Everyone you know, knew about electric scooters at this point. Yeah. A lot of people were using them, but no one had considered to use them in that way at that time. And yeah, they just hit the nail on the, on the head. Whereas I think a traditional business or a normal business is a one that you know, in most cases is just taking advantage of um, you know, the, 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 the opportunities that they've got in front of them, you know, there's not, not necessarily anything unique or special relating to the product, the service or the timing or the nature of what 
what they do. And that's not to say that one is better than the other, because honestly, let's look at it. If you were just, if you only wanted to start a unicorn, chances are that's never going to happen for you mm. or anyone for that matter. You know, I think if you look at the businesses that have the biggest effects and impacts on our economy, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a collaboration of not unicorns, you know, unicorns for True. the most part, they're the, uh, they're the anomaly. So, um, I, I did see that scooter. I think I realized when I came, well, I actually was traveling back and forth in the United States, but Miami, not the other side. LA, I don't, I don't know. I don't really like LA. I mean, it's you cool, been to the right parts. Not, I don't know. I went to Santa Monica and a few places. I just wasn't vibing it. Okay, Miami. But let me ask you, when you went to Santa Monica, were you beachfront Santa Monica or were you inland Beach Santa Monica? Front. Okay, no, you're in the wrong right. part of Santa Monica. You're in the tourist destination. Yeah, I was Santa Monica. Tourist. If you go like 15 minutes, you know, up, what's the street called? Fucking, ah, uh, it's the main street in Santa I Monica. I didn't like um, it. I don't know. <laughs> but no, no, but this is what I'm saying. If you go 15 minutes up the main street of Santa Monica, what's it called? Um, I've got Paul giggling here right now. Ocean West Park, Rose Hollywood? Avenue. No. No. That's go not. to Santa Monica up here, Paul. Scroll down. Uh, <laughs> anyway, if you go in, like it's only five, 10, 15 minutes. It's a completely different place. It's yeah, got incredible weird. restaurants. It's got incredible shopping. It's, it's almost like a, uh, a beachside Beverly Hills. Okay. I'll probably have to go check it out. Cause I remember when I went there, I was just like, uh, I mean, there was some nice places, but I was just not vibing it. Miami is Miami. I was like, yes. New York. Are you, yes. But are you Latino? You, are you, are I am. I'm, I'm half Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> well, that says everything. Like Miami's got a very strong Latin influence <laughs> and that's going to make you feel at home every day of the week. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't speak Spanish by the way. I just look at, so yeah, unfortunately, but um, I actually, I actually wanted to ask you also, I did a poll on LinkedIn about two months ago and it went viral. It literally was a poll that said, what are your thoughts on what should be first when starting a business, sales or marketing? <laughs> and I had people in my comments literally fighting each other, like, no, it's sales. Like if you don't have sales, you don't have a business. And people were like, no, it's marketing because you need to be seen in the market or otherwise you're dead. It was so interesting. You're, you're the best person to answer this question. <laughs> what is it? It was like 150,000 views on this poll. Wow, well done. Well done. <laughs> it was like so funny. <laughs> well, it's interesting because when you look at the five stages, because I've got the five, you know, the, the five pillars of fast growth, but I've also got the five stages of fast growth, you know, and stage one is the startup phase, you know, and yeah. every stage is governed by a particular skill set that needs to be mastered in order to accomplish that stage and go to the next level of Donkey Kong. And okay. so stage one is startup phase. Stage two is the growth phase. Stage three is um, the scale phase. Stage four is the, uh, not creative. Uh, fuck me. I shouldn't, I can't remember. I'm forgetting my own stuff. Anyway, I'll start with stage one. Stage one, the startup phase, the number one skill that you need to develop in order to be a successful startup is sales. Now you might go, well, hang on. What about marketing? Well, it depends on where you are, you know, and most businesses are bootstrapping. You know, there's not a lot of businesses most, out there, yeah. you know, that are starting with, you know, tens of thousands, let alone hundreds of thousands of dollars in the bank account. In most yeah. cases, you know, they may be living paycheck to paycheck. And the reason I say sales is so important. And again, this is only based on my own experience, but what I can tell you right now, based on my own experience, every business I've ever started, I have been able to, through networking, to be able to generate leads, 
But if not for the skill of sales, I wouldn't have been able to convert them. Yeah. Okay. Because you could be the best marketer in the world. So you can generate plenty of leads. But if you can't sell, you're not going to convert anything. And so for me, the step one is always developing a sales skill because you can network to generate leads. But once you start developing a sales skill by virtue of being you know, strong in sales, you're going to sell more, which means you're going to by virtue produce more cash flow. Okay. And then it's understanding what you do with that cash flow will determine what happens next. It's either going to hold you back or it's going to move you forward. Now, yeah. most people, when they start in, and they start in a startup, they start selling, they start making money. You know, the first thing you want to do when they start making money, what do you think they want to do with that money? Spend it. They want to fucking spend it. You know, they want to buy a new car. They want to buy a new watch. They want to go on a holiday, buy a handbag, buy a bikini, whatever. Whereas it's like, you know, you're not going to be doing any of that for the first five to seven years unless there's an anomaly, right? For the first five to seven years, every dollar above the cost of living gets pumped back into the business for mm-hmm. its growth. Because after all, what, what, you know, if you do that well for 10 years, you'll, be living, you'll have an ATM at the end of 10 years. But mm-hmm. if you keep taking the money off the table 10 years from now, you'll be burnt out, earning $150,000 a year, burnt out, and you'll have key person risk because you'll be the person person who's running it. So for me, you've got to learn how to master sales as a key strategy around developing cash flow. If you can sell the product, you can test the products, putting it in people's hands. You're going to get the feedback. You're going to learn the process to sell. Okay. And I've seen plenty of businesses that have money that don't know how to sell, spend you know, thousands of dollars on a marketing budget and get no sales. Whereas if they just started on a sales strategy, refined a sales strategy, you know, whatever minimal amount of leads that they would have got in, they would have a higher probability of being able to convert. But now, you know, three months later, we've developed a sales process. We know now how to sell this product. We know how to sell this service. We now have feedback from the market that it works. Now we've developed cash flow. And we haven't spent it. Now we reinvest that into stage two with growth. And the key skill in growth stage is marketing, the ability to generate leads. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And at this point, we're now taking, you know, any money that's made from sales, we're turning that in, we're channeling that into marketing. Marketing produces more leads, which by virtue produce more sales, you know, and then that moves us into stage three, you know, stage three um, is the uh, scale phase. And that's all about recruitment. And, you know, recruitment requires talent, talent require money. And if you can't, no one's going to work for you for free. And so by virtue, we need to build up cash flow to be able to invest in marketing. Marketing will then be able to amplify our cash flow to then produce even more excess cash flow that we can invest in talent. And mm-hmm. talent is what is going to determine, you know, whether or not I'm working in a job as a business owner, two, three, four, five, 10 years from now. Because if you can't hire effectively, if you don't know how to recruit, and that's where I hear someone, okay, when I try to recruit people, everyone sucks. And so, like, well, you know what? I have been through, I counted this up. <laughs> my my, my um, CFA went through this. I have made 736 bad hires in the last 15 years. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So when people say to me, okay, when I tried to hire people, it didn't work. I say, how many people did you hire? And they go like one, two, three. I'm like, I hired se- I've hired seven. Now, when you equate the average bad hire, it costs you $120,000. Do the fucking math on that. That's crazy. It's nuts. But here's what I'm here to tell you is you don't get it right every time, but any skill that you practice with repetition, you get better at. And when, if you expect to be good as a recruiter and you've never recruited before, you're not going to be good. But if you keep showing up, you keep going through the process, you keep paying attention and being aware, you're going to learn that there are certain things that talent does in an interview and there's certain things that staff do in an interview, you know, and you're not after hiring staff. You want talent. Staff are people who turn up to get paid for a job and talent are people who are on purpose, who are on passion and who do what they do because they love it. The fact that they get paid is a bonus. And if you're wanting to scale, especially scale quickly, you need talent. Okay. Not saying you can't scale with staff. You can, it just takes a lot longer, Mm. but it takes time to learn those skills. That's actually so interesting how you say sales, obviously, you know, a lot of people were saying sales, but funny enough, the poll 
it was marketing, marketing yeah, wine over sales. It. I don't doubt it. Yeah, that's commercial. They, they, that's a very corporate mentality. It, and I don't, mean that, I don't mean that disrespectfully. No, you know, no, no. I've, I've worked with entrepreneurials, the entrepreneur yeah. type and the corporate types, and they're not the same psychology. You yeah. Know, corporates are very academic. Entrepreneurs, you know, are very intuitive for mm-hmm. the most part. You know, corporates have been, in, for the most part, shown how to do it in a book. You know, yeah, entrepreneurs, for the most part, they've had to work it out. So I'm not, yeah. uh, I, I understand why a corporate person would say marketing, but they've got a budget and that's why they're saying that. It was hilarious. The comments were insane. Like people were going off at each other like crazy. But yeah, I, I agree um, in a sense of how you said it made sense. You know, sell, put the money back into the business to be able to grow, which leads to marketing essentially. Yeah. I mean, simple model, really. Very. Works. Not rocket science. Right? And the best um, part is it's a bootstrap model. You know, you don't need access yeah, to credit. You don't, you don't need, need access yeah. to funding. You know, you can bootstrap that stuff. Every business that I've started up, Belinda, I've sat down with myself, either by myself or myself with the team that I had or myself with the co-founders. And every single one of them has gone, okay, let's write down the names of every person that we know, like, trust and respect. Okay, now let's ring up these people and say to them, hey, listen, we've just started a business. Okay, we've just developed this product or this service. We've just developed the sales process and I need to practice on somebody. Do you mind if I come and practice my sales process on you so yeah. I can so that you can actually give me genuine feedback to improve it? Now, if it's a mate, they're not going to say no. So you're going to get like an 80% conversion rate to an appointment. And I can tell you right now, every time I've done that, that's what's bootstrapped my startups. You know, yeah. friends, family, and anyone foolish enough to get within 10 feet of me to be able to ask that question. Wow. So did, you, did you bootstrap your Everything uh, I bootstrapped. Everything. I've only raised, I have raised capital before, but for other projects, never for my own stuff. Never for your own stuff. Why is that? You're I in service. Yeah. I, I prefer, I'm not a fan of, especially in a personal brand business, you know, the last thing you want to be doing in a personal brand is giving away equity. Okay. And so for me. Oh, um, got it. Yeah. Cause it's killing me. Because it's Kerwin Ray, right? But yeah. also at the same time, even if it's not a personal brand, equity is, you know, and if you've got a good business, equity is gold. You it know, is, I think, yeah. and I think it's, you know, people often too easily give up money because they're too lazy to fucking generate it themselves. Yeah. You know? And so they end up raising capital from investors that put into a business that isn't even proven. You know, mm-hmm. and that's why for me, you know, I'd much prefer to be able to go, well, if I can't make this business work, then why would I ask anyone to give me fucking money for it? Now, I know there's anomalies to that where you might have a tech company or you might have a particular type of business that needs, you know, heavy capital expenditure in order to get it to a point where it's operational. But, you know, fortunately, and I say fortunately, touch wood, I've never found myself in that situation yet. And it's not to say I would never raise capital for a business. I just typically for myself choose businesses that I can fund through selling that I can raise capital through sales. And then, you know, so my series A will be, you know, friends, family, and fool, and anyone foolish enough to get within 10 feet. And my series B will be marketing. You know, mm-hmm. so for me, series A is all about network and series B is all about take it to market. I'll let the market raise the money for me because if I can sell my product or service, I don't need to get access to funds at I that point it. unless I'm looking to accelerate, right? But at the same time, I've now, and here, here's what's really interesting because if I, you want to look at a startup and the startup, his early stage, it's pre-revenue, you know, they can go to market because it's a great idea and raise funds. They're going to give away so much more equity if they're pre-revenue than they are if they're post-revenue. Yeah. You know, and if you were to just say, let's take an extra three months, an extra six months, and let's get post-revenue. Let's prove that this thing can make money. You've now increased your valuation, okay, mm-hmm. which means you're going to be giving away less equity for more money, 
Uh, but some people are just too fucking lazy or too impatient to do that. Whereas I'm more about the proof. I want to prove a concept first. And that's also reflected in my investment strategy as well. Like I don't, I think in the last five years, I'm maybe, yeah, I don't even know if I have, I've maybe invested in one pre-revenue company. I don't invest in pre-revenue. I don't invest in dreams. I invest in the yeah. reality of, do you have a business that can make money? If you do, great. Let me show you how to make more and I'll give yeah. you some money to do that. It's true. We get, you know, going back to what you were saying, like, I think when I was in service businesses or I still am, but for a long period, I was like, why are people raising all this amount of capital, like millions of dollars? Oh, you know, it, it was just so insane for me. And coming from a sales marketing background myself, I was just like, what? Um, but now being in tech for three years, I get it. You know, it takes like 500 to 1.5 million to actually build out a tech stack. Um, and then obviously go to market strategy and everything else on top. So I kind of get the whole point of raising capital. Uh, for, there's for a whole economy, Belinda, that but, is based on capital raising, not based on revenue, yeah. based on your ability yes. to raise capital. Yes, essentially. So yeah. people, that, hence why there's so many angel investors out there, but keeping in mind, um, you know, I've seen businesses do really well when pre, uh, pre-revenue pre capital raising, like having angel investors put 500 to $1 million in Absolutely. sometimes more have yep. made 10 times their money back in, you know, three years. Yes. So, you know, th- there's a potential opportunity there, but I, I get it, you know. Um, I will contradict myself every step of the way on this conversation and say <laughs> there will always be situations like that where you'll get yeah. an anomaly like that that will come through. And that's, yeah. let's be honest, that's an anomaly. Yeah. Okay? I mean, look at Canva, you, look at Melanie, you know. Exactly. Uh, but when you look at, you know, if you look at any, um, and there's not as many around, you know, because I know going back 10 years ago, in- incubators were everywhere. But yeah. even the incubators know one in a hundred. You know, if, of every hundred investments you make, you'll be lucky if one of them will give you back what you've spent on those other 99, you know, and, and, and that's what I know. I'm not saying I would never, and I'm not saying you should never, but what I'm saying is that's the anomaly. And right now there is a whole economy that is geared around, not the ability to make money, the ability to raise money. And that's not a business model. No, no. I, I mean, and I, I mean, even Gary V, he preaches about this. He's like, all these guys are just he like, does. <laughs> literally raising money. And then they're celebrating because they raised 5 million bucks. Like, what are you celebrating? You haven't even you started haven't the company anything. yet. <laughs> you haven't even haven't got anything running through your accounting no, system. It's true. You know? I get it. You know, those people make, make it look bad, but you know, there are the one in a hundred or there one. are. There yeah, are, and I don't do want to take well. away from that. And that's why, you know, yeah. hopefully that point was we yeah. got through. There are businesses that do operate better depending on the level of capital expenditure that's required to get them commercial that will move a lot faster with investment. And actually I would go as far as to say any business is going to move a lot faster if it has investment, but it's knowing, you know, first of all, what to do with, it's being able to know what to do with that investment and what you're giving up on giving away for that. Mm. And and I'll um, leave it at this. There's a couple questions that I want to ask you or more if I could, but we're running out of time. Um, you're an entrepreneur. So, I mean, the question that gets asked many, many, many times over is, are you born with it? No. Something that you can teach. So if you have a 20-year-old kid that says, Cohen, I want to be an entrepreneur. Can you teach me to be an entrepreneur? Do you think that you could teach that kid to be an entrepreneur? Depends on what his values are. Yes. But I guess as simple as 
do you think entrepreneurship can be taught? Uh, I, I think any skill can be taught depending on the values of the person that's listening. And the reason I say the values is because what the individual values will determine what they listen to mm-hmm. and will determine what they're able to do based on what motivates them. And, you know, so for me, when you look at, that's like saying to someone, you know, can you teach anyone to play tennis? You can teach anyone to play tennis. What level of tennis they're going to be able to play will come down to their values. How much do they value competition? How much do they value the thrill of tennis? How much do they value the stress of, you know, being in a tie break and, you know, being able to come out the the back end of that. Mm. And, you know, the perspective that I have around business is this, like an entrepreneur is essentially another word for a professional athlete. You know, I I have this very strong belief that entrepreneurs are athletes and depending on your level of income determines on the level of where your professional skill lies. Because if you look at, you know, elite professional athletes, like what what determines the difference between, you know, a professional tennis player and an amateur tennis player, apart from experience, what's the difference? What is the main difference between an amateur tennis player and a professional tennis player, apart from skills, knowledge, and experience? Great. What? No. Well, what determines if someone's a professional? Their actions. If they get paid. Oh, right. Okay. That's what determines an athlete's doesn't status. Amateur, doesn't amateur still get paid? No, you don't get but paid. Not, not like, as much as. You, you, if, if you're getting paid as an amateur, you're not an amateur anymore. You're now professional. Right. Okay. okay. So as a professional athlete, the key difference is you get paid to compete. Now, as an entrepreneur now, and this is where you start looking at different forms of professional sports. Like right now, you know, they classify esports as a professional, as a professional grade sports. And these are guys for the most part that, you know, eat Cheetos and drink fucking Red Bull. And they're, you know, they're playing on a, and don't get me wrong. It's a skill, but it's classified as a sport. Yeah. Okay. But if you look at any competitive sport, whether it be tennis or esports or 10 pin bowling, they spend a very small percentage of their life competing. Maybe 2% of their life is in comp- competition. They spend a significant percentage of their life, maybe 20, 30% of their life in training. They would probably spend 50% of their life, if not more, in rest and recovery. Okay. But they're spending 2% in competition. Let's call it 30% in training and development and 50% in recovery. Okay. Now, you look at a professional business athlete, how many hours a day? Like, cause if you play tennis, you're competing for about four hours a month as a professional athlete, like four, maybe six hours a month. Now Federer yeah. maybe competes, if that. Um, I, you know, if that, you know, depending on, on, on the tournament that they're in, but as an entrepreneur, how many hours did you compete yesterday? I'm going to, I'm going to probably suggest okay. if you're a normal business person, probably eight. I mean, I don't I don't compete. <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, how many times do you show up and get on the, how many hours a day do you get on the yeah, court? Yeah, yeah, probably, I don't know, like 12, 16 hours, something a day. A day. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You're working yeah. way too hard. Mate, and uh, I love it. <laughs> I know you love it, but what you've got to understand is you're working at a level of competition that no other professional sport on the planet can maintain. Yeah. You can't, yeah. a professional tennis player can't play 10 hours of tennis every single day and be a functional athlete at the end of seven days, let alone 14 days. But this is what we're doing as entrepreneurs. Mm. Entrepreneurs, we're competing six, seven, eight, 10, 12, 16 hours a day. We're lucky if we do any form of training and development 
Okay. And we're even luckier if we actually dedicate time to recovery, rest, proper rest, proper recovery, inactive and active recovery. And so many entrepreneurs are wondering, oh, I don't understand why I can't get the best out of myself. I don't understand why I'm not motivated. Start behaving like a fucking athlete. You know, you're a trillion dollars a buy tech in a box. If I was to go to market right now and try, try and raise capital to be able to, let's say I had the formula to replicate Belinda. Okay. That is a multi hundred billion dollar idea, not idea, but business. If I could say, well, I've got the formula and I can replicate Belinda on demand and I can create as many Belindas as I want. That's a trillion dollar idea right there. A hundred. And the reason, and, and the reason it's a trillion dollar idea is because you are the most complicated piece of technology that this planet has ever seen. Mm. Yet most people are behaving like a Nintendo Game Boy. We are an incredibly complex and powerful piece of technology. And when we are governed, when we are trained, when we are rested in the right way, we can compete at extraordinary levels of performance. But most entrepreneurs don't treat themselves like athletes. They treat themselves like, I don't even know what you would classify it as, but they don't treat themselves like athletes because they're excessively competing, you know, not doing enough training, not resting and recuperating. And as a result, they end up being, you know, um, a burnout on the side of the road. And there are so many businesses that fail. And you look at the statistics, every business that starts today, there'll be maybe 1.8% of them that'll be alive in 10 years from now. No, I agree. Yeah. And I think in the mix of it, a lot of us have imposter syndrome. I mean, you know, we wake up and like, what do we, how do we end up here? Like, what are we actually doing? <laughs> but yeah, it's true. We need to, to work on our health and, um, you know, what we eat, our diet, who we surround ourselves with, what we read, what we well, watch, the thing. who we live with. If you're working 16 hours a day, I would question how effective you are in those 16 hours a day. Oh, like I would say I'm effective four hours out of those days. Yeah. Yeah, like here's easily. the thing. If you, could, if you could create a routine around recovery, around training and around performance that governs you to be able to compete, let's call it four times a day or five times a day for 90 minutes or 60 minutes at a stretch, You'll be able to halve the amount of time that you work and increase your output and productivity by probably more than two, 300, 400%. And I'm not saying this as a guess. I'm saying this because this is what I do with my clients. When I get, when I work with a client on average, I'll increase their productivity by about 400%. Now I want, I want to contextualize that. That means one hour of work now gives four hours of output, mm. one day's worth of work, four days worth of output, one week's worth of work, four weeks worth of output, one month's worth of work, four months worth of output, one year's worth of work, four years worth of output. There's a formula to speed. Okay. And it's not working excessively. And if anything, it's knowing how to conserve, it's knowing how to, and eating right is half the battle, but you know, when you eat right, you have more energy and clarity. When you're hydrating with good, with good fluids, you have more energy and clarity. When you rest well and you get a good night's sleep, when you surround yourself with healthy relationships, you know, when you look after your mental health, all of these things increase energy, clarity, and the ability to be productive. And you combine that with a strong plan where you're focusing on the key things, you know, the three, four, five key things you need to focus on every day. You know, that's why most of my clients go from 100 hours a week to 25 hours a week and end up, you know, 2Xing or 10Xing their business because they become more effective when they start behaving like an athlete. I love that. Thank you so much being on pleasure. the show my pleasure um where where can people find you cohen like do you have you've got an instagram do you have a linkedin account is there a yes. direct email people can reach out i'm on I'm sure. linkedin instagram tiktok facebook uh Ray, right At kerwinray.com k-e-r-w-i-n 
ray.com and look we've got a few programs that we uh, we offer to the market especially if you know if you're in business and you're looking for some to get a leg up we've got a free program that we've just launched or that we've just converted to free it's called the fast growth summit that focuses on social media uh, and the accelerator which is a bit uh, a free five-day training that just shows people how to you know get things happening faster and again, where is that based on, uh, they can find that on the website on the website. Okay, cool. Is there a specific date that that's happening or is it just like an online? If, if you just sign up to, um, if you download anything on the website, you'll be emailed and notified of anything Perfect. we've got going Perfect. on. Awesome. And is there a direct email where anybody can reach out to you directly or um, an yeah, I, I don't, I don't give out my personal email. That would be a fucking nightmare. But, <laughs> <laughs> but anyone can reach us at support at Kerwinray.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Cohen. I appreciate your time. Linda, it's an absolute pleasure. I look forward to watching your journey. If there's anything you need, don't hesitate to reach out. No, I'm looking forward to connecting. Thanks for listening to Startups and Unicorns with Belinda Agnew. If you haven't already, please subscribe if you enjoyed this episode. Ployd is the only flat rate recruitment product helping companies scale talent without breaking the bank. For more tips and value, follow us on our socials via at MMSOfficial and at Ployd.co on Instagram. Connect with us on LinkedIn at Inemis Employed or get in touch directly with Belinda by following her at Belinda Agnew Official.